Luke chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute, that being Jesus. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you or your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, for the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And when the unclean spirit is gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, A woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning, as we consider what it is that your son is doing here and teaching here, as we consider what it is that, or why it is that your Holy Spirit worked through Luke to arrange this story in the way he has. Father, we pray that, that we'd understand your word, that you would turn on the lights in our dark heads, that we'd see the truth, we'd love it, we'd rejoice and repent, look to your Son and walk with him, that we'd be changed people, that we would understand the distinction between brokenness and repentance, that we'd be a repentant people, that we would understand the gospel and what your son has done in putting Satan to open shame on the cross and that we would rejoice in that and find our hope there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the questions that scholars ask as they look at this passage which follows on the Lord's Prayer as Jesus has just taught us how to pray according to the Lord's Prayer which he's laid out and then said, now here's the Lord's Prayer and now know this, that if you're pursuing this prayer, and if you're praying this way, and if you're persistent, God is going to answer this prayer. And he's going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then suddenly Luke turns into this passage, now he was casting out a demon of a man that was mute. They say, well, why does Luke make this transition? It doesn't seem to be that he makes this transition for chronological reasons. In other words, it doesn't seem that this story followed right after he taught on the Lord's Prayer. So what's the theological reason then? What's the agenda that Luke has in putting this story next? I don't know if you guys are aware, but the Gospels aren't all in chronological order. 
Is there a chronological order in some places? Yes, there is in some places. And can you determine it through harmonizing the accounts? Yes, you can. But here's what we want to be clear about. In the first century, they didn't write history the exact same we write history, and they weren't as concerned about chronology as we are. They were concerned about how history is making a point. And so he's making a point about Jesus and his life and ministry. But here's what scholars can't figure out. They're not quite sure what the thematic connection is. What is the thematic connection between the Lord's Prayer and what he's teaching here, and that if you ask, God's going to give you the Holy Spirit, and then what happens with this demon being cast out and the story that's then told? And I think sometimes scholars don't notice those connections, although I see, I see some who've made some various suggestions, but I think sometimes they don't because they're not out in walking around with normal people enough. You know, they're in the library too much, and they don't interact enough with the average person in ministry, and so it's, it's more difficult for them to see exactly what Jesus is doing because Jesus is doing something very, very practical, something that hits right home. Let's look at verse 14, and we'll see that, what that is. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. In other words, Jesus was casting out a demon. The demon itself was not mute. That's not what he's getting at. It's, it's the idea that the demon is a demon that muted the man's speech. He could not speak. When we read of the same casting out of this demon in Matthew's account, we find out that the demon not only muted the man, but actually made him blind as well. But Luke doesn't get into that part of it. He just says the demon made the man mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. Luke places this demon who makes this man mute right after he talks about the Lord's Prayer. Why? Well, what is the Lord's Prayer? I, I went through it with you guys the last few weeks, and so I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time on it, but you're praying a kingdom-centered prayer, the kind of prayer in which God is exalted, in which you're asking first for God's reign to be made known, the reign of God to be made known, and, and the reputation of God to be made known. In other words, hallowed be your name, his reputation, your kingdom come, his rule or his reign, and give us this day our daily bread. That's for God to provide for you, but it's trusting him to provide for you physically. And forgive us our sins. It's trusting him to provide for you with regard to moral forgiveness, the need for that. And, and then it's, it's the, the last one is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I need him to protect me spiritually. And so I'm, I'm praying this kind of prayer, which is a kingdom-centered prayer, a prayer the Lord answers, but a prayer that this man can't pray because he's mute. An experience of the benefits of the kingdom of God that this man is not experiencing. See, he can't exalt God's name with his mouth. He can't even pray, the prayer, pray this prayer because he's mute. He can't, he can't experience the benefit of God's rule because he is currently suffering in the kingdom of Satan. He's not experiencing forgiveness of sins. He's not experiencing deliverance from the evil one. He's experiencing all the opposite of that. He's not experiencing the gift of the Holy Spirit that brings him into the kingdom of God and frees him from all this. This man is dominated by and in some sense owned by Satan. This is Satan's world in the sense that it's not a world turned toward God. This is a fallen and world that is subject to death and deceit and decay. Satan loves to keep man from God. Satan is opposed to God. He's at war with God, if you will. He desires man to face the penalty of death or sin, penalty of sin, which is death, 
to be under the power of sin, which is slavery, and to live in the presence of sin, which is temptation in this world system. And since the fall, God promised to send a redeemer for mankind. So look with me at Genesis 3.15, and I want you to see that. And I'm going to tell you right now that Russell and Jason are going to be back here in the next couple weeks on this text. But I want you to, so I'm not going to spend tons of time on it, but I want you to see just this picture. Man has fallen into sin. Man has fallen into sin. And God is cursing the serpent, Satan, who led man into sin. And then he goes on to curse the man and the woman. But what's interesting is, in the midst of the curse, God makes a promise. He declares war, if you will, on the serpent. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, this is what scholars call the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. This is the first proclamation of the gospel, the good news. There is a man coming, and this man, this one who would come, is going to be victorious over Satan and is going to crush Satan's head. And this man who would come and defeat Satan, sin, and death would do so through the bruising of his own heel by entering death himself. And as God's Old Testament people, which we read about, the Old Testament, waited for this man, the Messiah, to come, God went about making them promises that helped them understand who he'd be. See, in a sense, all of the Bible is a commentary on Genesis 3.15. It's a playing out of this promise that God has made. And when we see all the Old Testament promises and all the Old Testament occurrences or events, we see that they're all picturing and helping people understand who this man would be that would come and crush the head of Satan. God gave them types of this man. God gave them tastes of his kingdom that would come with this king. God gave them priests who were types of the great high priest who would not only offer atoning sacrifices for their sin, but who would himself be the atoning sacrifice for their sin. God gave them prophets who were types of this great prophet who would not only speak the truth, but who himself is the truth. God gave them kings who were types of the great king who would not only rule righteously in a broken and fallen sinful world, but who would redeem and restore the whole of creation and rule perfectly for eternity. He gave them all of these pictures in the Old Testament. And then this Messiah, this promised man, this Savior and King, came bringing his kingdom, and his name is Jesus. God sent Jesus to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness to bring us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And as Jesus was going about his promised work, he saw and met and ministered to people who were fully in the grip of Satan's kingdom. And Jesus only ministered to two types of people. You guys realize that, right? Two types of people. Who were they? There were those who were in the grips of Satan's kingdom and knew it, and those who were in the grips of Satan's kingdom and didn't know it. Those are the only people he ministered to. Those are the only kind of people there are. And this mute man, this demon-possessed man, is a very tangible picture of someone who's in the grips of Satan's kingdom, and he knows it. And he knows it. But we also see people in this passage who don't know they are. They don't know they're in his grip. Look at verse 15. But some of them said, sorry, of Luke 11, some of them said, 
he casts out demon by Beelzebul. So you know that means the Lord of the Flies. What? I thought that was a novel that kids read in high school. That's kind of disturbing. That's true too. But Beelzebul is, is, is a reference to the Lord of the Flies. This idea that if you think about where flies are born and what they eat, you understand, right? And that's the reference that's being made to Jesus. He's the prince of demons. See, these people are in the grips of Satan and they don't know it. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, I, I think that's ironic. He, here Jesus just heals a man they've known has been mute and blind for years, casts a demon out, the man starts praising God, he can see, and the crowd says, well, in order to believe in you, we need a sign. What was that? Jesus responded to them by pointing out that the whole tenor of his work, the whole tenor of his work is opposed to Satan's kingdom. And so their argument that he's somehow a tool of Satan is nonsense. In other words, what he's saying is, he's going to go on and make a couple of arguments. One is, is an argument that it just says that that's a nonsense supposition that I would actually be out working against Satan on his behalf. And then he goes and makes an ad hominem attack. You guys know what an ad hominem attack is? You see them often. You, you know, you're on Facebook and you say, I believe in Jesus. And somebody comes on and says, well, you're a jerk. That's an ad hominem attack, right? Okay. They don't give you an argument. They just attack you. Well, Jesus actually uses one of those. It's a really clever one. They're not always unhelpful. And in this case, Jesus uses one. So let's look there. Verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. Abraham Lincoln later picked this up and used it in a speech. The idea is that if a kingdom is divided against itself, then it's not going to survive. And so if Satan, verse 18, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I can't cast out demons by Beelzebul. In other words, if I'm working by the prince of demons, why would Satan have me working against himself? That doesn't make any sense. He goes on, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, here's the ad hominem attack. In other words, if I'm doing it by the prince of demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, is it possible for people to perform miracles by the power of Satan? Apparently, throughout Scripture, it is possible. But Jesus' whole ministry has been opposed to this. And the religious leaders should know that, and that's what Jesus is driving at. You've seen my ministry. You know what I'm about. I've never read about the things of Satan. Why would you even make that accusation? Jesus then goes on to define what is really happening in the deliverance of this man. Look at verse 20. Here's where he defines what's really happening. Verse 20. But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now that's an interesting phrase. If it's by the finger of God that I'm doing this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, if the king is here, so is his kingdom. That's why you hear John the Baptist and then Jesus later saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or nigh or near or whatever version of English you're reading. You guys know that statement. You say, oh, does that mean it's coming? No, the king has arrived and so his kingdom has come with him. That's why it's near. And he says, if the finger of God, if it's by the finger of God that I'm doing this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I am the king bringing the kingdom. Matthew informs us in his account of this same story that when he uses this phrase, when he, Jesus says this, he, what Matthew says is he actually replaces the phrase, the finger of God with the Holy Spirit. He says, if it's by the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
So here's the question. Are Matthew and Luke disagreeing with each other? Are they in conflict in their accounts? Because Matthew says if it's by the Holy Spirit, that's what Jesus said. And Luke says, he says, if it's by the finger of God. Or does the finger of God and the Holy Spirit refer to the same thing? And are they emphasizing different things? That's why they pick different phrases. Well, look at Luke eleven thirteen really quickly. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In other words, the context that's happening here is when you pray this kingdom-centered prayer, this Lord's Prayer, God is going to answer by bringing the kingdom and the benefits of the kingdom to His people by giving them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes ushering in the kingdom on behalf of the Son, Jesus. So why does Luke use the phrase, the finger of God, instead of just saying the Holy Spirit? I think Luke does so because he's pointing out an emphasis in Jesus' ministry that Matthew's not focused on here. Luke wants to focus in on the work of the Holy Spirit as tied to the Exodus account. What? The Exodus account? What happened in Exodus? Well, what did God do in Exodus? He delivered his people from slavery and death in Egypt, didn't he? He came to get his people and take them to his kingdom to live under his rule and blessing. And Luke is pointing out the fact that the whole story of the Exodus, the whole story of the Exodus was a shadow, a picture, pointing to God, God's people to the ultimate deliverance and rescue from Satan, sin, and death that would come with Jesus. And how do I know that Luke is doing that? Well, because of the use of the phrase, the finger of God. You know this phrase is used in the Exodus account. Look at Exodus chapter 8. Keep your hand there. I want you to see in Luke 11 and look at Exodus chapter 8. I want you to see this phrase used there. As Moses keeps coming to Pharaoh saying, let my people go, and Pharaoh keeps saying, no thanks, I'm not going to do that. Moses keeps bringing various, by the power of God, various plagues. In Exodus chapter 8 and verse 16, the third plague of gnats comes. And we read there in verse 16, And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats of man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In other words, the way that Moses is doing this is by the finger of God. This isn't a magic trick. We can't do it. He's doing this by the finger of God. God's spirit is the one who's carrying out these miraculous plagues. Now look further to Exodus chapter 31 because this phrase isn't just used here. Exodus chapter 31, the people have come out of Egypt and they're all the way to the land and Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and brings down to them the law. In Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18, this is God, the Lord, giving this to him. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with, on Mount, with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, that's the law, and how he give them to him, 
written with the finger of God. See, what happens when Jesus comes and brings the new covenant? What happens? Well, look at Ezekiel chapter 36. Because the new covenant's promised there. Ezekiel chapter 36. I want you to see how this carries out with this, the finger of God at work. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the new covenant promise is made. And in verse 22, the Lord says this, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Later on, this is picked up by, Moses, by Paul talking about the fact that the, word, the law of God has been written on our hearts by the Spirit of God or the finger of God and no longer on tablets of stone. And he goes on and he says this in verse, 27, uh, verse 28, You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. See, there's the great covenant promise throughout Scripture. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And that's going to happen when I do a great work among you. And I will write my law on your hearts. And I will redeem you from your situation. In this case, he'll take them out of exile. In the case of where they were for 70 years, in the case of Israel, he'll take them out of Egypt through the Exodus account. In the case of mankind answering the promise of Genesis 3.15, all the things the Old Testament is giving the picture of, finally and fully, Jesus will come and he will take us out of slavery to sin and Satan and death and bring us into his kingdom and return us to, in a sense, Eden. Look what it goes on to say. Verse 29, And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this is the land that was desolate, desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. This is what Luke is pointing to in Jesus. That just as God by his spirit came and delivered the people from Egypt, redeemed them, 
and gave them his law to live under his rule and blessing in his kingdom. Just as God by his Holy Spirit came and brought the people of Israel out of exile in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and redeemed them from that and restored all the things that were broken down and by his Spirit ruled them and blessed them, just as those things have happened, so Jesus is coming and he's working by the power of the Holy Spirit The finger of God has come to deliver us from Satan and sin and death and deliver us into his kingdom, his glory and blessed kingdom in which we live under his rule and blessing, which will be now is now inaugurated, which will be fulfilled when Jesus returns, consummated fully when Jesus returns. That's what he's pointing at. This king is coming to deliver his people from slavery. The king is coming and he's on his way to his cross to redeem and deliver and claim his people as his own. And that's what Luke's pointing to here. And with that said, Jesus tells us two parables that are extremely important in understanding what he wants the people to know. Look at verse 21 of Luke 11. As he tells these two parables following on this. When a strong man, here's the first parable. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. See, Satan is the strong man here in this parable. And he's guarding his own palace, which is this world system. And he's guarding or keeping his goods safe, which is you. And Satan sometimes does this through demon possession, like we see in the mute man here. But he most often does it through much more deceptive and unnoticed means. See, Satan is not generally the boogeyman who guards his palace by scaring everyone with apparitions and demons, etc. Right? That just doesn't attract a lot of people to want to follow him. Satan is generally coming as the angel of light who guards his people through keeping their hearts firmly fixed on themselves. He whispers sweet little nothings about you into your ear. He loves to keep you in bondage by making you blind to God's existence to God's holiness, to your sin, to God's wrath against your sin, and your need for Jesus, your need for salvation, your need for God's people and His church. And if Satan can help you focus on your sin, he will. He'll actually help you focus on your sin. Did you hear that? Not just help you turn away from focusing on your sin, but he'll actually help you focus on your sin. But he'll lie to you with half-truths. You know, Charles Spurgeon made the comment that, that any time a half-truth masquerades around as the whole truth, it's a complete lie. And that's essentially what Satan does. He comes in the front door. You guys know what this is like in life. He comes in the front door and he tempts you to sin. You know you want to. It isn't that bad. Any God who keeps that from you is stingy. And then he comes in the back door and accuses you saying, how could you? You guys have that experience? What kind of person does that? God would never accept you. See, he's right that God never accepts you. He's right. God would never accept you in and of yourselves. You are sinful. But he's only telling you half the truth. See, he's blinding you to the fact that God can and did accept Jesus. And if you trust in Jesus, then you're in Jesus, and Jesus is your righteousness. Look at, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to see 
Satan's, what Satan tries to keep you from. Because I think a lot of times we think that if we see our sin and feel guilty about our sin and feel like we have conviction about our sin and we're all broken up about our sin and God could never trust our sin, that that person is a long way toward Jesus. And that's not true. That isn't true. If that person only believes that and doesn't know about the grace of God in Christ, that person is just as lost as the person who's running around living up their sin thinking it's not a problem. Oh, but that person knows about the holiness of God and they feel convicted about all they've done and they know the truth that God would never accept them and they're not out there pumping up their own self-esteem so they're really closer to God. No, they're not. If they don't know about Jesus and they're not trusting in his righteousness, then they're no closer to Jesus and to salvation than the man who's running around there, boozing it up, having illicit relationships with all sorts of people who thinks that either God isn't there or if he is, then he's just going to let it go because that's the kind of guy he is. Satan loves to deceive you with half-truths. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, having the ministry, this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by an open statement of the truth, we'd commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. There, by the way, is a ministry philosophy. We're not playing games and setting up circus tricks for you. We're preaching the word of God. We're making an open statement of the truth. We're not cruise directors, right? Planning all of your life activities. We're not therapists making you feel good about yourself. We're making an open statement of the truth. And verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that being Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing something. What? From seeing their sin and the holiness of God? No. Keep them from seeing the law and its requirements and their failure to keep it? No. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel or the good news of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. See the picture? You may be everything Satan accuses you of. He's probably half right. But your righteousness is seated at the right hand of God. And he is the same yesterday and today and forever. So Satan may be trying to keep hold of you, but one stronger than Satan has come. Look at verse 22 of Luke 11. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he is trusted and divides his spoil. In other words, when the stronger one comes, the strong man loses. Jesus is the stronger one. He is the one who's come into Satan, the strong man's house, and he's defeated Satan through his own death. In other words, Satan's power was death, and Jesus entered into that death to defeat the power of Satan. As God promised, Jesus' heel was bruised, and the serpent's head was crushed. Jesus entered Satan's castle and destroyed his work and defeated Satan's greatest weapon, which is death, and he did it through his own death. See, that's why I love why Paul makes this statement in Colossians 2. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it to you. In Colossians 2, Paul makes a statement about this very thing when he says this in verse 13 through 15. He says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made alive together with him, him being Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. See, that's the part Satan doesn't want you to know about. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And by nailing it to the cross, by himself going to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in, in him. So you've got to love that. Jesus goes into Satan's palace and puts him to open shame. He spanks him in front of the whole world. So the next time Satan accuses you and lies to you and makes you fear facing and confessing the truth about you and at the same time tells you that God's grace is insufficient for you, the next time Satan says that you should be ashamed and that if you really face who you truly are and what you have done and really confess it to others and to God, then they will be ashamed of you, particularly God will be ashamed of you. Next time he says that, you need to remind Satan that Jesus is a stronger man. And that Jesus is the one whom you trust. You may be right about me, Satan. I am sinful and weak and disgusting and wretched and vile. And that's all true. I've seen my life. I know my heart. And you may be right about me. And you may be able to hold on to me because you're stronger than me. But I have a Lord and a Savior who is the strongest man. And he came into your house and he made a fool of you in front of all of your people as he put you to open shame when he went to the cross on my behalf and took my shame upon himself and bore it for me so that in front of him I now have glory and honor. But lest we understood why Jesus came, Jesus tells us another parable to make clear that he didn't just come to help us clean up our mess. And let's be clear about that. He didn't just come to help you clean up your mess. Look at verse 23, this next parable. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. See, we don't know what that means, <laughs> incidentally. It goes out, it goes around seeking rest. We don't know what that means, okay? But it means that it goes out and goes around seeking rest. Is that clear enough? Okay. All right. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. I'm going to go back to that person. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Why is Jesus telling us this? What's this parable about? What's he driving at? I think Jesus is basically driving at this. Don't, don't get me wrong. I came to conquer Satan and bring you into my kingdom where you're my subjects and my people and you walk with me and follow me and you're mine. I didn't come to put Satan to open shame so that you could live for yourself and clean up your own mess and make your little house tidy for you. So that you could remain in neutrality toward me. You're with me or you're against me. You're either gathered with me or you're scattered. There is no neutral ground. How do I get that? Let me, let me give you four steps to, to my reason for that. Verse 23, whoever is not, first step, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've come to deliver you to my kingdom, but you can't stay neutral about me. You're with me or you're against me. You're mine or you're Satan's. 
I'm not a good, just a good moral teacher or a nice example or someone who helps you tidy up the mess you're making in your life. I'm the Lord. Neutrality toward me is not an option. It's opposition. So you don't just come to me and sitting on your couch of life, push the intercom and ask for your divine butler to come and answer your needs. Come clean up and tidy up the mess. You see, I'm so obsessed with myself that I'm just going to sit here and live in my own refuse and I'm making such a huge mess while I'm sitting on my couch of life, I need the butler to come in and clean it up. So can you do that? And then go away, and when I make a big mess again, I'll call you again. That's not an option. That's opposition to Jesus. Second, look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says... I will return to my house from which I came. Interesting phrase. The demon refers to this person as my house. This person still is owned by him. Jesus pointing out this person experienced God delivering him from a huge mess. This person experienced massive deliverance. He even tidied up the house to where it's cleaner when the demon comes back. But this person never turned to Jesus. This person was thankful for what God did but this person's life remains their own, which means it belongs to Satan. This person does not belong to Jesus. They aren't Jesus' house. The Holy Spirit is not there, so Satan happily returns. Hear the point? Because see, if you turn to Jesus in faith, then you're in fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are making their home in you. But if you just get God to deliver you from something, from some mess in your life, never turn to him, it's very easy for the demons to come back because you're still theirs. Look at verse 25. This is the third step. And when it comes, the demon comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. See, the mess is all cleaned up. God helped me out, so now I can, I can really live my best life now. Right? I can become a better me. He gave me a new lease on life. He helped me clean up my mess. Thank you, God. And so returns the evil spirit. This person is still mine. Fourth, look at verse 26. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And now, now catch this. The last state of that person is worse than the first. See, the spirit returns and the person is worse off than they were at first. This person experienced the power of the kingdom of God and they tasted the goodness of the word of God and yet they were worse off than they were at first. This person is, is the person who even heard the gospel and responded with great joy, and yet having no root in himself, eventually died. You know this person. You may be this person. See, we're in a world, even a Christian world, that speaks a lot about brokenness, aren't we? We love to talk about brokenness. But we don't speak much about repentance. And what's the difference? Brokenness is often the fruit of worldly sorrow. Brokenness often leads to picking up the pieces and cleaning up the mess. Brokenness is often sorry about the consequences of sin, but not about the offense against God that sin has brought. Brokenness leads us to hate what sin has brought about, but not hate the sin itself. See, when God delivers you from this kind of brokenness, you're thrilled God delivered you from the mess, perhaps even exuberant, but you never look to Jesus as your hope and salvation. You attempt to clean up your own mess. And you can do this without ever being born again. 
You may feel like you have a new lease on life, but you never, and here's the key with brokenness as opposed to repentance, you never came to the end of yourself. You're always holding on to your own life. It's often demonstrated by your inability to face your sin and really confess it. You know what confess is? The word in the Greek is homo legeo. It's homo same, legeo to say. To say the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. To say the same thing about yourself that God says about you. See, until you get to the point where you're willing to recognize who you really are and what your sin's really about and really confess it, you're not at the end of yourself. As long as you're holding on to something, I don't want to tell anybody about this. I certainly don't want to go to God. I don't even want to acknowledge it. I want to justify it. I want to make excuses for it. I want to say it's caused by other people around me or circumstances in my life. I want to do all that before I ever face up to the fact that, no, you know what? My wife didn't cause me to cheat on her. My own wicked heart did. Was my wife a good wife? No, but I'm a worse husband apparently. You see, until you can get to that kind of point, incidentally, I didn't cheat on my wife, just so you know, right? It's an example. But until you can get to, and my wife's a great wife, but until you can get to that point, until you can get to that point, you haven't reached the end of yourself. And you might just want to come to the church and talk to Christian people and get in touch with Jesus so they can help you tidy up the house because it's a mess. Clean up the brokenness because I want things to be put back together. And you end up worse off than when you started. Repentance is the fruit of a kind of brokenness, however. It's the fruit of godly sorrow. Repentance comes out of being born again. It's the response of someone who sees the truth about himself, confesses it, and looks to Jesus in faith. It's the response of someone like, like David in Psalm 51 after he cheats on one of his wives, commits adultery with the wife of another man, has the man put to death, lies to his kingdom essentially. I I mean, it's just a horrible pattern of things to do. After that, David confesses this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. See, he doesn't start saying, you know what? It's, it's that woman's fault for hanging out on that rooftop unclothed. That was hard for me. It's, her, it's my wife's fault because she wasn't help, taking care of my needs. See, it's, it's, it's the pressures of being the king that led to all this. It's not what he says, is it? I'm a sinful man. I've done horrific things. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew it a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a, live, with a willing spirit. Brokenness from worldly sorrow and repentance from godly sorrow bear different kinds of fruit. 
they bear different kinds of fruit. How do you know which one you have? Because the kind of fruit that it bears. Look at Luke chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. As he said these things, he's telling the story in front of a crowd. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And you know this has to come from a woman because what man gives that compliment? (laughs) Right? This is a mom, right? Complimenting a son by saying, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And this isn't normal for a woman, so you know in a large crowd to, to yell out a praise. That's abnormal culturally. That isn't the thing that generally happened. So for this woman to do this, she's being quite bold. And she's singing the praise of Jesus. And Jesus' response to her, this, in a sense, if you will, the local charismatic woman, right? Jesus' response to her is what? Verse 28, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. See, Jesus turns this blessing. He says, even my mom knows this. You find that out in other chapters. But don't, I, I'm not interested in your enthusiasm right now. Show me your obedience. So you can tell me about your exuberance, but show me your faith. See, how many pastors and Christians get overjoyed and put too much stock in initial reaction to the gospel? See, how often do you see someone rejoicing because someone's enduring in their faith? Why are you excited today? I'm rejoicing because Joe has been a faithful Christian now for 40 years, and I'm just completely blown away by it. See, we don't make videos of that, do we? Here's Joe, right? Joe's been following the Lord now for 40 years. He's been a wonderful guy. Here's him doing his Bible study. Here's him walking with Jesus. His life's relatively uneventful. Here's him serving in his church. Nobody's weeping because he hasn't made a giant mess of his life because he's just trusting the Lord, right? And we don't put those out and say, let's get a whole bunch of of this happening, right? We're not that excited about people enduring in their faith. Let's, let's, Let's face it. We like the exuberant, joyful response. Here's Sheila. She was a mess. She was addicted to alcohol and drugs. She came in this morning. She's rejoicing in Jesus. Woo, yeah, let's baptize her. Let's all have a party. We're all excited. And that's great, but... Meanwhile, I say, and by the way, isn't this cool? And look at, look at this guy over here. He's been faithful for 50 years. People go, that's nice. That's nice. Should we rejoice when people are saved? Sure. Yes, we should. God rejoices when people are saved. But God knows who's really born again and who's not, and we don't. So we should rejoice to see people endure as well. See, we should rejoice to see people hear the word of God and obey it. The longer I've been in pastoral ministry, the more I I can tell you how thankful I am for seeing people endure, seeing God work graciously in their lives and keep them in the faith. And, And honestly, as excited as I am when people show some initial repentance and profession of faith, and I can't tell you how excited that makes me, um, I get excited about it, and and then I have this measured sense of, I pray this person endures. I pray this is true. I pray this is enduring. I pray this is repentance and not brokenness. I hope this person isn't using Jesus to clean up the mess, but really has been delivered by Jesus from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, right? That's what I pray for. And I get really excited now about endurance. I think that's also because I'm not as young, even though I look at 
You all know that's true, right? <laughs> As I age, I mature and realize, realize that getting old isn't easy, is it? And nothing blesses me more than seeing people who are aging well and being faithful to the Lord. And I say, man, if, if, if we could just have lots of those people. So it's easy for the church to cast them aside and look for the new young converts and forget about the aging saints who've been faithful for years and enduring in the faith by the grace of God and the example they are to the rest of us. We might jump up and down with excitement now, but where is your obedience? Have you heard Jesus call you out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom? Have you confessed your sin, repented of your sin, looked to Jesus in faith? If not, today is the day of salvation. Jesus will deliver, redeem, and hold on to you. You'll be forgiven, you'll have new life, you'll be his. Just look to him in faith and cry out for the strongest man to come and save you. Cry out for the finger of God of the Holy Spirit to write anew on your heart. Turn from your sin and self-righteousness Turn to Jesus and live. That's what he's getting at here. And if you are trusting him, don't ever cease reminding yourself or other believers that the stronger man came into Satan's house and went to the cross and put Satan to open shame so that you would be saved. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that your spirit would work in us, that the, your finger would write on our hearts we would endure, that we would trust in you, that we would be thankful for your son, we would follow your word, that we would be a repentant, confessing people trusting in Jesus. Father, we pray that your spirit would write anew on people's hearts today who don't know you, that you would give them new life, new birth in Christ, that they would trust in you and repent, confess their sins to you and know forgiveness in your son Jesus. No new life in him. Pray that you would do that great work for us. We know you've done it for us in Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection, in the ascension and the sending of the Spirit. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts so we'd walk with you in humility and in joy. In Jesus' name, amen.